Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to Origins Episode 75. This week's show is entitled Sharks Can Be Cuddled Like Dolphins. Some other stories we'll be looking at include Ancient Antarctic Mountains Have Been Found Under Miles of Ice and a new exhibition of art reveals the extent of Darwin's impact on 19th century artists. From the damninteresting.com, a story on barnstorming. And a mysterious inscribed slate is discovered at Jamestown. And the poop on finding penguins. Follow the guano. Those and other stories on Origins Episode 75. Today's first story comes from the www.nytimes.com website and it's by Dwight Garner and it's a story about a book entitled Why Are Humans Different From All Other Apes? It's the cooking, stupid? Human beings are obviously not equipped to be nature's gladiators. We have no claws, no armour. That we eat meat seems surprising because we are not made for chewing it uncooked in the wild. Our jaws are weak, our teeth are blunt, our mouths are small. That thing below our noses, it is truly a pie hole. To attend to these facts for some people is to plead for vegetarianism or for a raw food diet. We should forage and eat the way our long ago ancestors surely did. For Richard Wrangham, a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard and the author of Catching Fire, however, these facts and others demonstrate something quite different. They help prove that we are, as he vividly puts it, the cooking apes, the creatures of the flame. The title of Mr Wrangham's new book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, sounds a bit touchy-feely. 
Perhaps you think he has written a meditation on hearth and fellow feeling in s'mores. He has not. Catching Fire is a plain spoken and thoroughly gripping scientific essay that presents nothing less than a new theory of human evolution, one he calls the cooking hypothesis, one that Darwin, among others, simply missed. Apes began to morph into humans, and the species Homo erectus emerged some two million years ago, Mr. Rangham argues, for one fundamental reason. We learned to tame fire and heat our food. Cooked food does many familiar things, he observes. It makes our food safer, creates rich and delicious tastes, and reduces spoilage. Heating can allow us to open, cut, or mash tough foods. But none of these advantages is as important as a little appreciated aspect. Cooking increases the amount of energy our bodies obtain from food. He continues, The extra energy gave the first cooks biological advantages. They survived and reproduced better than before. Their genes spread. Their bodies responded by biologically adapting to cooked food, shaped by natural selection, to take maximum advantage of the new diet. There were changes in anatomy, physiology, ecology, life history, psychology and society. Put simply, Mr Rangham writes that eating cooked food, whether meat or plants or both, made digestion easier and thus our guts could grow smaller. The energy that we formerly spent on digestion, and digestion requires far more energy than you might imagine, was freed up, enabling our brains, which also consume enormous amounts of energy, to grow larger. The warmth provided by fire enabled us to shed our body hair so we could run farther and hunt more without overheating. Because we stopped eating on the spot as we foraged and instead gathered around a fire, we had to learn to socialise and our temperaments grew calmer. There were other benefits for humanity's ancestors. He writes, The protection fire provided at night enabled them to sleep on the ground and lose their climbing ability and females likely began cooking for males whose time was increasingly free to search for more meat and honey. While other habilines, tool-using pre-humans, elsewhere in Africa continued for several hundred thousand years to eat their food raw, one lucky group became Homo erectus and humanity began. You read all this and think, is it really possible that this is an original bit of news? Mr. Rangham seems as surprised as we are. What is extraordinary about this simple claim, he writes, is that it is new. Mr. Rangham arrives at his theory by first walking us through the work of other anthropologists and naturalists, including Claude Levi Strauss and Darwin, who did not pay much attention to cooking, assuming that humans could have done pretty well without it. He then delivers a thorough, delightfully brutal takedown of the raw food movement and its pieties. He cites studies showing that a strict raw food diet cannot guarantee an adequate energy supply, and notes that in one survey, 50% of the women on such a diet stopped menstruating. There is no way our human ancestors survived, much less reproduced on it. 
He seems pleased to be able to report that raw diets make you urinate too often and cause back and hip problems. Even castaways, he writes, have needed to cook their food to survive. I have not been able to find any reports of people living long term on raw wild food. Thor Heyerdahl, travelling by primitive raft across the Pacific, took along a small stove and a cook. Alexander Selkirk, the model for Robinson Crusoe, built fires and cooked on them. Mr Rangham also dismisses for complicated social and economic reasons the popular man-the-hunter hypothesis about evolution, which posits that meat-eating alone was responsible. Meat-eating has had less impact on our bodies than cooked food, he writes. Even vegetarians thrive on cooked diets. We are cooks more than carnivores. Among the most provocative passages in Catching Fire are those that probe the evolution of gender roles. Cooking made women more vulnerable, Mr Rangham ruefully observes, to male authority. Relying on cooked food creates opportunities for cooperation, but just as important, it exposes cooks to being exploited, he writes. Cooking takes time, so lone cooks cannot easily guard their wares from determined thieves such as hungry males without their own food. Women needed male protection. Marriage, or what Mr Rangham calls a primitive protection racket, was a solution. Mr Rangham's nuanced ideas cannot be given their full due here, but he is happy to note that cooking trapped women into a newly subservient role enforced by male-dominated culture. Cooking, he writes, created and perpetuated a novel system of male cultural superiority. It is not a pretty picture. As a student, Mr Rangham studied with the primatologist Jane Goodall in Gombe, Tanzania, and he is the author, with Dale Peterson, of a previous book called Demonic Males, Apes and the Origins of Human Violence. In Catching Fire, he has delivered a rare thing, a slim book. The text itself is a mere 207 pages that contains serious science, yet is related in direct no-response prose. It is toothsome, skillfully prepared brain food. Zoologists often try to capture the essence of our species with such phrases as the naked bipedal or big-brained ape, Mr Rangham writes. He adds in a sentence that posits Mick Jagger as an anomaly and boils down much of his impressive erudition, they could equally well call us the small-mouthed ape. And the article notes that the book Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human by Richard Rangham and published by Basic Books is $26.95 and that's US dollars, of course. From the dsc.discovery.com website, ancient Antarctic mountains are found under miles of ice. 
Millions of years ago, rivers ran in Antarctica through craggy mountain valleys that were strangely similar to the modern European Alps, Chinese and British scientists reported on Wednesday. In a study published by the British journal Nature, the scientists described a vast terrain that had been hidden beneath ice up to two miles thick for eons, until new imaging technology recently uncovered them. The landscape has probably been preserved beneath the ice sheet for around 14 million years, the paper said. The imaging revealed classic alpine topography, similar to Europe's Alps, showing that rivers had once existed on Antarctica and had cut their way through the mountains. Later, these valleys were gouged and deepened by glaciers. The team conducted two separate probes, one in 2004 to 2005 and another in 2007 to 2008, using deep penetrating ground radar in a squared off section of the icy continent, measuring 18 miles on each side. They started from a set point each time, a 13,000 foot mountain named Dome Argus. Beneath Dome Argus, scientists discovered an ice sheet between 5,410 and 10,285 feet thick that smothers the Gambitsev Mountains, a range named after a Soviet geophysicist, Grigory Gambitsev, who first detected the peaks in 1958. The research also looked at deep-sea isotope records and theorised that there was a period of global cooling called the Eocene between 52 and 34 million years ago that eventually led to the formation of the polar ice caps. Then came two progressively dramatic periods of cooling which scientists have linked to a decline in naturally produced greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere. The same gases that now man-made are blamed for global warming today. According to their research, changes in Earth's orbit and the formation of the frigid current that flows around Antarctica contributed to the process of placing the continent in a deep freeze. The first of the big chills came at the start of what is called the Oligocene period, around 34 million years ago when glaciers first started to form in Antarctica. The Gambitsev Mountains, because of their high altitude, were probably one of the places where glaciation first began, the scientists believe. At the time, there would have been a mean summer temperature of 3 degrees Celsius, they estimate. The second cooling spurt came around 14 million years ago, characterised by a plunge in temperatures of around 6 to 7 degrees Celsius, reaching up to 8 degrees in the Transantarctic Mountains, the spine that divides east from west Antarctica. Jerry Guo, writing for SeedMagazine.com, 
has an article entitled A New Exhibition Reveals the Extent of Darwin's Impact on 19th Century Artists From Monet to Reinhold and How Art in Turn Shaped Darwin Surrealist artists claimed Freud, the Cubists looked to Einstein, but Charles Darwin's influence on his 19th century artistic contemporaries has rarely been fully appreciated. In celebration of his bicentennial birthday this year, Connecticut's Yale Centre for British Art, the YCBA, and the UK's Fitzwilliam Museum, the art museum to which Darwin would escape from college classes at Cambridge, have launched endless forms, Charles Darwin, Natural Science and the Visual Arts, a travelling exhibit that properly takes stock of the impact Darwin's evolutionary theories had on the visual arts. The exhibit moved from Yale to Cambridge on June 16. It's hard to exaggerate just how widely Darwin's ideas on natural selection and the evolution of humankind travelled in the cultural milieu of his day. Even in the age of stagecoaches and month-long journeys across the Atlantic, artists of all shades reacted to his revolutionary theories, and this exhibit attempts to capture their range of responses in all sorts of mediums, including paintings, photographs, sketches and sculptures. Sprinkled amidst 200 works of art are historical collections of natural wonders like beetles, fossils, gems, stuffed birds and plated flowers. These items give visitors a distinctly visual sense of what artists and Darwin himself grappled with during the Victorian era as academic science began to challenge the subjective nature of romantic art. The exhibit categorises Darwin's artistic influence into tidy themes, like the Darwinian struggle for existence, the ancient history of Earth, the kinship with other animals, the origin of man, and the nature of beauty as a product of sexual selection. But perhaps the most eye-opening aspect of endless forms, an allusion to the ending of his 1859 masterpiece on the origin of species, is the revelation of how art influenced Darwin. Just as Darwin introduced Victorian sculptors and French Impressionists to scientific order, artists helped the young naturalist draw a connection between details in nature and his bubbling ideas on evolution. Take, for instance, the astoundingly thorough 17th century engraving of a gnat's eye or the intricate drawing of the common milkwort flower by Darwin's mentor at Cambridge, the botanist John Stevens Henslow. According to curators at YCBA, these depictions of adaptation and complexity in part inspired Darwin's thoughts on natural selection. Most famously, his thesis that the beaks of Galapagos finches were uniquely adapted to each island stemmed from a series of lithographs drawn by the ornithologist John Gould and are on display in the exhibit near a case of stuffed birds of paradise. But the biggest draw, both for audiences of his time and museum-goers today, may be the depictions of apes. With the publication of The Descent of Man in 1871, 
Darwinian became synonymous with Simeon. The exhibit in fact includes Victorian political cartoons that caricature Darwin as a foolish chimp. Near the exhibit entrance are two sculptures that reflect the conflicting societal views of human evolution. One is Hugo Reinhold's iconic pose of an ape holding a human skull deep in thought, juxtaposed next to Emmanuel Fremier's shocking gorilla abducting a woman. Some of the other displays are more subtle. It's revealed that Edgar Degas, best known for his miniature ballerinas, drew inspiration for his careful sculpting of facial features from Darwin's expression of the emotions in man and animals. And though it's hard to tie Cezanne's painting of a cistern to evolutionary theory, the curators give it their best shot. They point to the rock in the background as evidence of a new curiosity about geology. Monet's 30 successive paintings of the Rouen Cathedral in northwestern France are seen through the lens of natural selection. This nuance bleeds a bit into the head-scratching subjectivity. A modest drawing of the Andes holds an indisputable place of honour in the gallery. It's one of the only known drawings by Darwin himself. In contrasting the majestic strokes of the Impressionist masters with Darwin's childish squiggles and uneven shading, the exhibit makes clear that Darwin was brilliant, but also very self-aware. He knew to leave art to the artists. And now for some feedback from our listeners about the Origins podcast. We've had quite a few in the last couple of weeks and I'd like to take these ones from the iTunes US store. The first one is from Captain Webby. An all-round great podcast. From the music to the content to the sound of Paul's voice, this podcast is relaxing and educational at the same time. I'm an archaeologist working in northern Nevada and I listen to a variety of podcasts while surveying for new sites. When Origins comes on, I find that I am intellectually engaged and focused all at once. Thanks for the well-rounded subject matter, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Captain Webby. And from Utah Matt comes this review. International flair, eclectic mix of articles, info and music. Worthy of a listen. A Renaissance Persons podcast. This well-produced show offers a good blend of articles mined from a variety of web sources and respected journals. The information presented crosses many disciplines and is always interesting and occasionally even useful. 
the host seems generally unbiased and presents the information for the listeners to interpret. The show also exposes me to music I'd never have found on my own. Top-notch product, great for a long commute. Highly recommend a listen. Also from the US iTunes store, Phil22 wrote, Educational and enjoyable. Great variety of interesting topics delivered in a pleasant voice. Thank you, Phil. And Sam Coat. Paul uses his pleasant voice to read articles gleaned from anywhere. How he does it is beyond me. I spend hours every day on the net and miss them all. Hats off, you are the best. Five stars. Cheers, Tom. And I also received a review via email from Tom Bloom, who lives in Thailand. He says, I would just want to thank you for your amazing work and ability to make these podcasts. I am retired here in Thailand and have nothing to do all day, so I listen to science and information podcasts most of the time. And he says his wife hates it. But anyway, thank you, Tom. And finally, two reviews from Podcast Alley for the month of June. I hope I get this correct. It's Dysentrope? Hopefully it's correct. A gem, superbly produced, gently engaging, intriguing, without hype. And from Ariano, love this podcast. This is one of my favourite podcasts to listen to. I love learning new things about our world, but I don't always have the time or patience to research it all. Paul manages to present new and amazing information about our world in a way that's interesting and pleasant. The music is great, the content is superb, and Paul's voice is captivating and soothing at the same time. Really a fantastic podcast. Well, what a fantastic review. I can't ask for better than that. Thank you very much. And remember, if you would like to provide feedback for the Origins podcast, which is greatly appreciated, do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And my email address is origins at origins.info. Well, I think I've fed my ego enough for this episode. Let's get back to the show. From the telegraph.co.uk website comes the story Sharks can be cuddled like dolphins, says scientists. Sharks can be trained like dolphins to feed from keepers, roll over and enjoy cuddles, according to new research. In experiments carried out in the US, some varieties of shark allowed themselves to be picked from the water and cuddled. Keepers at the UK's Sea Life Centres will now use the training techniques in the hope that they will end up with hundreds of trained sharks. The experts at the aquariums are to begin a period of intensive tuition by using coloured boards and sounds to train the sharks in a similar way to that used by the scientist Ivan Pavlov in training dogs. It will mean that feeding becomes easier because each shark in a tank will know when it is their turn to feed. The sea life centres have many different types of shark and within just three months the brightest ones should be responding to commands. Sharks learn the signals, 
Then when they see or hear them, they approach the keeper who holds a target stick. The sharks then rub their noses against the stick and wait until they are fed. No one has attempted to train sharks in this way before, but it could now teach experts a great deal about the creatures. Kerry Duckhouse of Sea Life said, The US team has shown that many varieties of shark can quickly learn to respond to a combination of audible and visual signals. A shark answers its own sound and colour signal by putting its nose on a target stick held by the trainer and keeping it there until it receives food. Some species, such as zebra sharks, will even roll over to have their tummies scratched and allow themselves to be lifted from the water without any kind of struggle. The implications for improving shark welfare are enormous. It means when we have to move them, we can get the sharks to swim to a certain spot rather than have to chase them around. I tolerate our cat. I love my dog. And now a shark to tickle its tummy and hold in your arms just before it bites your arm off. Well, best of luck with the training. We'll see what happens. The following is an article by Alexis Madrigal, writing for the www.wired.com Wired Science website. The Earth gets a billion year life extension. The Earth could be habitable for another 2.3 billion years, extending previous estimates of life's horizon by more than a billion years. King Fai Li and his colleagues at Caltech hypothesize that Earth's atmospheric pressure has always varied and that it could fall in the distant future, keeping Earth from frying for far longer than previous research has shown. If the new idea proves correct and can be extended to other planets with biospheres, it could increase the chances that earthly civilization finds extraterrestrial life by doubling the percentage of time that planets could be inhabited. The Earth will be identifiable as an inhabited planet for nearly half the total lifetime of the Sun, an important point to consider in the search for life on extrasolar planets, the authors write in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Over the next hundreds of millions of years, the Sun will continue to get brighter until eventually Earth becomes too hot to inhabit. 
previous calculations had pegged that time at about a billion years from now. But the new paper argues that earlier models had neglected the role of atmospheric pressure in regulating the temperature of the planet on astronomical timescales. Atmospheric pressure is a key variable in the overall greenhouse gas effect because it determines how much infrared radiation greenhouse gases absorb. Higher pressures mean more absorption and consequently more heat. Lower pressures have the opposite effect. Life itself would be the mechanism for these temperature changes. By fixing nitrogen, pulling it out of the air and eventually into the Earth's deep ocean, microbes could be making the atmosphere lighter one atom at a time. I am glad that Lee and colleagues have raised the issue of how overall variation in atmospheric pressure may have affected past and may affect future climate, ecologist Ken Caldera of Stanford University said in an email. This could be relevant for understanding climate change on the billion-year timescale. Despite this potentially important role, atmospheric pressure in the distant past has gone uninvestigated. We have a lack of data about the past history of the atmospheric pressure, said Lee. Admittedly, that means that there is a lot of uncertainty in their calculations. I think more work needs to be done before we can say with any confidence how the total mass of the atmosphere has varied in the past and how it might vary in the future, Caldera said. While there are implications for very long timescale, Lee said the work was unlikely to have an impact on the models of anthropogenic climate change. We all know that the human activity which is influencing the atmosphere has a timescale of hundreds of years or thousands of years, Lee said. Even if the biosphere is really controlling the climate, it's not on that timescale. Lee said that an important next step in the research field would come from astrobiologist Roger Buick's lab at the University of Washington, which is attempting to measure atmospheric pressures deep in the past. So the assumption that we've always had an atmosphere of the same pressure as now is widespread, but there's no justification for it, Buick said. The reason that everyone just assumes an atmosphere of roughly current pressure is that it is exceedingly difficult to measure in the past. The weight of the atmosphere doesn't leave much record in geology. But Buick found a set of basalt rocks from 2.7 billion years ago in northwestern Australia that he thinks bear the marks of that pressure. Gas bubbles trapped in the rocks could provide the answer to whether or not the atmospheric pressure was different way back then. Using the size of gas bubbles to establish the altitude of an eruption is a well-known scientific practice. Smaller bubbles mean lower, larger ones mean higher. Buick, though, knows from other evidence that the rocks were formed at sea level, so variation in bubble size will be an indication of atmospheric pressure, not elevation. If you know that your basalt erupted exactly at sea level, you can use it as a paleobarometer rather than a paleoaltimeter, he said. Buick's got an open mind about what he might find, but no matter what the data shows, he's not confident that it will be well received by the scientific establishment. 
if the number is substantially different, even greater or lesser from today, we'll have quite a bit of explaining to do, and I expect people will not believe it anyway, he said. Lee's group, though, is waiting on Buick's data to let them know whether they're on the right track with their speculations that Earth's biosphere can actually change the weight of the atmosphere. If the atmospheric pressure is changing, the only effective mechanism we can think of is by the biosphere itself, Lee said. For those of us who are old enough to remember Fred Flintstone and the cartoon series, you'll remember at the end of the show, as they come out of the drive-in, they get this huge set of spare ribs which fits on the side of the car and tips the car over, it's that heavy. Well, according to this article from dsc.discovery.com, that cartoon may not have been too far from reality. Mammoths Roasted in Prehistoric Kitchen Pit, and it's by Jennifer Vegas. Central Europe's prehistoric people would likely have been amused by today's hand-sized hamburgers and hot dogs, since archaeologists have just uncovered a 29,000 BC well-equipped kitchen where roasted gigantic mammoth was one of the last meals served. The site called Pavlov VI in the Czech Republic near the Austrian and Slovak Republic borders provides a homespun look at the rich culture of some of Europe's first anatomically modern humans. While contemporaneous populations near this region seem to prefer reindeer meat, the Gravettian residents of this living complex described in the latest issue of the journal Antiquity appeared to seek out more supersized fare. It seems that in contrast to other Upper Paleolithic societies in Moravia, these people depended heavily on mammoths, project leader Jiri Svoboda told Discovery News. Svoboda, a professor at the University of Brno and director of its Institute of Archaeology and colleagues, recently excavated Pavlov 6, where they found the remains of a female mammoth and one mammoth calf near a four-foot-wide roasting pit. Arctic fox, wolverine, bear and hare remains were also found, along with a few horse and reindeer bones. The meats were cooked luau-style underground. Svoboda said, We found the heating stones still within the pit and around. Boiling pits existed near the middle roaster. He thinks the whole situation central roasting pit and the circle of boiling pits was sheltered by a teepee or yurt-like structure. It's unclear if seafood was added to create a surf and turf meal, but multiple decorated shells were unearthed. Many showed signs of cut marks, along with red and black coloration. The scientists additionally found numerous stone tools, such as spatulas, blades and saws, which they suggest were good for carving mammoths. 
Perforated decorative pebbles, ceramic pieces and fragments of fired clay were also excavated. The living unit's occupants left their fingerprints on some of the clay pieces, which they decorated with impressions made from reindeer hair and textiles. Some items might have held magical or ritualistic significance, according to the scientists. One such artefact looks to be the head of a lion. This carnivore head was first modelled of wet clay, then an incision was made with a sharp tool, and finally the piece was heated in the fire, turned into some kind of ceramic, Svoboda explained. We hypothesise that this may be sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic often involves the use of effigies or fetishes, resembling individuals or objects, and is meant to affect the environment or the practitioners themselves. Archaeologist Eric Trinkhaus of Washington University supports the new study, saying the site was excavated meticulously by Svoboda and his team. This is one more example, in this case from modern detailed excavation and analysis, of the incredibly rich human behaviour from this time period, Trinkhaus told Discovery News. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 75, you'll see some photographs of the barbecue and there is also a link to a slideshow and some other stuff to do with the article. from the damninteresting.com Barnstorming a story by Marissa Brook and this was written on August the 14th 2006 Today the term flying circus most often brings to mind dead parrots cheese shops and the knights who say knee Before the python guys came along however there was a different sort of flying circus quite a literal one in the US and Canada in the early days of aviation. After the First World War, the American government found itself with a large surplus of Curtiss JN-4 biplanes, known as Jennies. Flying was not yet regulated by laws and licenses, and so the planes were simply sold to anyone who wanted one. The Jennies were known to go for as little as $200, which, although a lot more money in those days, was a fraction of the original $5,000 production cost. 
Many of the buyers were former pilots in the war who wanted to keep flying. But quite a few of the others who purchased planes had never actually flown before. In fact, this would be the first major form of civil aviation. Quickly, this new influx of planes among civilians lent itself to entertainment. Airspace was open to any plane at this stage, and so at first pilots simply made money by going from town to town and offering 10-minute rides to the locals. This worked for a while, until planes became widespread enough for basic flight to become largely unremarkable. At this point, people began to do flashier things in the air, namely all sorts of creative and crazy stunts right on top of the wings of the planes. It is not clear how the term barnstorming emerged. One theory holds that it was named for earlier groups of travelling actors who put on plays in barns. Another, more plausible, argues that it was based on the unusual way in which the shows were announced to the local townspeople. Pilots would fly over a town to make themselves noticed and then land at a nearby farm and ask the farmer for the temporary use of the fields as a runway. Then, often the plains were met by rural towns with tremendous excitement in anticipation of the show. The phenomenon was a team effort throughout. The barnstormers consisted of both pilots and stunt people. They followed the example of brief flying exhibitions put on by the Wright brothers and Glenn Curtis, in the first decade of the 20th century, but took it much further. Aerialists performed wing walking, sometimes in costume. They transferred planes in mid-air, often via a small secure post in the centre of the wing. And it got more elaborate than that. Barnstormer Al Wilson shot golf balls, Mabel Cody danced, Gladys Ingle shot arrows at a target, although didn't necessarily hit it, Ivan Unger and Gladys Roy played tennis, complete with a tiny net stretched across the wing directly above the cockpit. Jack Shack hung from a trapeze by his teeth. Eddie Angel did what was effectively a free fall for thousands of feet holding a pair of flashlights. As in most modern air shows, sometimes the impressive aspect of the stunts came from the pilots. Occasionally, for example, objects were passed from a person on the ground to one hanging from a plane, undoubtedly a delicate manoeuvre. Other times it was the sheer endurance displayed that was the impressive aspect of the show. Pilot Speed Holman once flew 1,093 consecutive loops. One notable aspect of barnstorming was that in spite of its time, a substantial number of women and African Americans took part. This was partially due to the tendency for larger groups, including some families, to work together for a barnstorming show. These performances, which were eventually labelled flying circuses, usually involved several planes and many stunt people. They were better organised than the smaller teams and even notified towns ahead of time to schedule their shows. Probably the most well-travelled was the Ivan Gates Flying Circus, which went to every state that existed at the time 
as well as to several international locations. Often barnstorming was quite lucrative, in part because it still offered rides to civilians. It was notable also for its role in training pilots. Historian Don Dwiggins points out the widespread belief that, during the height of barnstorming's popularity, the Gates Flying Circus trained more than the Army and Navy put together. The notorious Charles Lindbergh was among the pilots who started out in barnstorming. Barnstorming had its problems though. For one thing, it was difficult in the early days of flight to be on such long trips. Pilots risked running out of fuel or spare parts, and it was exhausting for everyone involved. The stunt people sometimes even had to sleep on the wing of the plane. Obviously, it was a dangerous pursuit. As barnstorming's popularity grew, the performances became increasingly elaborate and risky. In 1924, stunt person Rosalie Gordon's parachute was tangled in the landing gear of a plane. She was rescued by fellow barnstormer Clyde Upside Down Pangborn from the Gates Flying Circus. Most barnstorming accidents, however, ended less happily. Although it is unclear just how many barnstormers were killed or injured while performing, the negative publicity started to dampen the huge appeal that barnstorming had had. It might still have continued for a while, however, if it hadn't been for two things the American government did in the latter half of the decade. First, it stopped selling jennies to the public. The existing ones were in decay, and there were no other inexpensive source of aircraft that could keep barnstorming as common as it had been. Second, in 1927, major new restrictions on the uses of aircraft and airspace were put into effect. While they didn't make barnstorming, per se, illegal... So many of the tricks were outlawed that barnstorming lost nearly all of its appeal. After this, the phenomenon died out almost overnight. A few barnstormers continued performing throughout the century, perhaps most notably extreme freefaller Joseph Kittinger, but barnstorming clearly could never see the popularity it once had. It was featured in a couple of films and won 1982 Atari video game, but little else. These days, some people use the term barnstorming as a synonym for mere stunt flying, and the only popular flying circus afterwards was Monty Python's, which kept its foot on the ground, if only in a literal sense. But barnstorming certainly had its place in history and in entertainment. Among other things, it serves as a stark reminder that extreme sports were around long before the 1980s and 90s. And just a reminder that much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network, and I see that they have a new name now. They seem to be incorporated into the Mevio group, and when you go to the website, it's now called Music Alley. It looks the same, but the logos are changed. Anyway, everything seems to work the same way as before, so hopefully it will continue and I'll still be able to use their music for the Origins podcast.
When I first came across this story, I thought it was a little too crappy for my podcast, but after reading it and thinking about it, this story from usatoday.com by Seth Borenstein was much more suitable, or so I thought. The Poop on Finding Penguins, following the guano. Scientists looking for lost penguins stumbled upon an effective method. Follow their poop from space. In remote Antarctica, about one and a half times bigger than the United States, researchers have been unable to figure out just where colonies of emperor penguins live and if their population is in peril. It's harder still because emperor penguins, featured in the film March of the Penguins, breed on sea ice, which scientists say will shrink significantly in the future because of global warming. Because the large penguins stay on the same ice for months, their poop stains make them stand out from space. Scientists at the British Antarctic Survey found this out by accident when they were looking at satellite images of their bases. A reddish-brown streak on the colourless ice was right where they knew a colony was, said survey mapping scientist Peter Fretwell. The stain was penguin poo, particularly smelly stuff, and it gave researchers an idea to search for brown stains to find penguins. They found the same telltale trail, usually dark enough to spot from space, all over the continent, said Fretwell by telephone from England. Using satellite data, the scientists found ten new colonies of penguins, six colonies that had moved from previously mapped positions to new spots, and another six that seemed to have disappeared. Overall, 38 colonies were spotted from above, according to Fretwell's paper, Penguins from Space, in the journal Global Ecology and Biogeography. It's a very important result scientifically, even though it's a light-hearted method, Fretwell said on Monday. Even though Antarctic sea ice hasn't melted so far, scientists predicted to shrink by one-third by the end of the century, potentially threatening the birds, Fretwell said. The research is incredibly useful because the only time to see emperors are during breeding in winter when weather makes it nearly impossible to get to the colonies, said long-time penguin researcher William Fraser, who wasn't involved in the study. Fraser noted that salty penguin guano over time will corrode your boots, adding that he has lost nearly a dozen pairs to poop in 35 years of penguin research. Our final internet article today comes from the news.nationalgeographic.com and it's about a mysterious inscribed slate that has been discovered at Jamestown and it's by Paula Neely. (laughs) 
Archaeologists in Jamestown, Virginia, have discovered a rare inscribed slate tablet dating back some 400 years to the early days of America's first permanent English settlement. Both sides of the slate are covered with words, numbers and etchings of people, plants and birds that its owner likely encountered in the New World in the early 1600s. The tablet was found a few feet down in what may well be the first well at James Fort, dug in early 1609 by Captain John Smith, Jamestown's best-known leader, said Bill Kelso, Director of Archaeology at the site. If the well is confirmed as Smith's, it could help offer important insights into Jamestown's difficult early years. Records indicate that by 1611, the water in Smith's well had become foul and the well was then used as a trash pit. Archaeologists discovered the slate among other objects thrown into the well by colonists. Slate tablets were sometimes used in 17th century England instead of paper, which was expensive and not reusable. According to Bly Straub, historic Jamestown's curator, People drew games and wrote on broken roof tiles, which could be washed off and used over and over again. Inscribed slates from this time period are rarely found in England, so little is known about them, she said. Archaeologists and other scientists are still trying to decipher the slate, the first with extensive inscriptions to be found at any 17th century colonial American site. The scratched and worn 5 by 8 inch tablet is inscribed with the words a minion of the finest sort. Above the words are the letters and numbers EL, NEV, FSH, HTLBMS 508 interspersed with symbols that have yet to be interpreted. We don't know what it means yet, Kelso said. According to Straub, minion is a 17th century variation of the word minion and has numerous meanings, including servant, follower, comrade, companion, favourite, or someone dependent on a patron's favour. A minion is also a type of cannon, and archaeologists have found shot at the James Fort site. That's the right size for a minion. Drawings on the slate depict several different flower blossoms and birds that may include an eagle, a songbird and an owl. The crude drawings of birds and flora offer dramatic evidence of how captivated the English were by the natural wonders of the alien New World, excavation director Kelso said. There's also a sketch of an Englishman smoking a pipe and a man whose right hand seems to be missing wearing a ruffled collar. Although the age of the tablet is not yet known, archaeological evidence, including turtle and oyster shells, Indian pots, trade beads, mirror glass, early pipes, medicinal jars and military items, indicates that it was deposited in the well during the early years of James Fort, which was established in 1607. If it is Smith's well, Archaeologists believe the tablet could date to 1611, when the well was probably filled in, or earlier. Another recent discovery from the same well is a brass baby's toy that's a combination whistle and teething stick. 
Straub, the Jamestown curator, said the teething stick portion is made from coral. In the 17th century, coral was considered good for babies' gums and a magical substance that kept away evil. She said it may have belonged to one of the women who arrived with children in 1609. It is impossible to know yet who the slate's owner or owners may have been. Straub said an image that looks like a palmetto tree, normally found from South Carolina to the Caribbean, suggests that the drawings may have been made during the voyage from England to Jamestown through the West Indies, once a common route to the New World. Or, she said, the slate could have been used by a colonist who was among about 140 castaways from the Sea Venture shipwreck in 1609. They were stranded in Bermuda for 10 months and arrived at Jamestown in the spring of 1610. Drawings of three rampant lions used in the English coat of arms during the 1603 to 1625 reign of King James I have also been discovered on the slate and could mean that the slate's owner was someone involved with government. Archaeologist Kelso suggests that the slate may have belonged to William Strachey, who served as secretary of the colony. He was among the shipwrecked colonists in Bermuda and arrived in Jamestown in 1610. Straub, the curator, also said the tablet may have been used by someone living in Jamestown who died in the winter of 1609 to 1610, known to colonists as the Starving Time, when the fort was under siege. Only about 60 of 200 people survived. Near the slate, archaeologists have found butchered bones and teeth from horses, as well as dog bones. That may date back to the infamous winter when colonists resorted to eating their horses and dogs to survive. It's also possible that the tablet was used by more than one person. There seems to be a difference in the style of handwriting, Straub noted. The images on the tablet are difficult to see because they are the same dark grey colour as the slate and they overlap. The colonists would have written on the tablet with a small rectangular pencil made of slate with a sharp point. This would have made a white mark, and fortunately for archaeologists today, it also left a scratch. You can wipe off the mark, but you can't completely erase the groove, Kelso the archaeologist said. That's why we have layer upon layer of drawings. In a way, it's archaeology. If one groove cuts across another groove, you could tell which one was the most recent. He hopes eventually to sort out the sequence of the images, with the help of NASA, where scientists at the Langley Research Centre are using a high-precision, three-dimensional imaging system similar to a CT scanner to help isolate the layers and provide a detailed analysis of the tablet. Determining whether this is in fact Smith's well will be key to understanding Jamestown's most difficult early years. According to colonists' accounts, water in Smith's well became brackish within a year after it had been dug. Some experts think foul water, including some poisoned by salt water, may have been a major cause of death during the starving time, in addition to starvation and disease unrelated to the water civil unrest and battles with Indians. Located near the James River, next to the first storehouse in the middle of the fort, the well was discovered last year 
and archaeologists began excavating it earlier this year. They believe it was dug before a well dating to 1611, which is located farther away from the river. Kelso said the colonists, having learned a difficult lesson from Smith's well, would have dug their second well as far from the river as possible to try to avoid contamination by the brackish river water. Archaeologists have dug down five feet so far and the pit has narrowed into a more well-like circular shape which may well reach nine to fifteen feet into the ground. Kelso said they won't know for sure if it's Smith's well until they get to the bottom and date the objects there. Finding the well, he said, will give us a chance to really look at the health issue and figure out what spoiled the water. Some clues to the mysteries contained in the 400-year-old slate might emerge then, too. I haven't done one of these for a while, so I thought I'd do an article from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. And When I opened the book to a random page, I came across deodorants, 3500 BC, Near East. And this sort of reminded me of my two sons, both teenagers now, who, when we can actually get them to get clean and get them to use some deodorant, they tend to use it more like spray paint rather than deodorant. Anyway, deodorants, 3500 BC. Here we go. The problem of body odour is ancient, as are man's attempts to solve it. From the dawn of written history five and a half thousand years ago in Sumer, every major civilization has left a record of its efforts to produce deodorants. The early Egyptians recommended following a scented bath with an underarm application of perfumed oils. They developed special citrus and cinnamon preparations that would not turn rancid in the semi-tropical climate and thus themselves be offensive. Through experimentation, the Egyptians discovered that the removal of underarm hair significantly diminished body odour. Centuries later, scientists would understand why. Hair greatly increases the surface area on which bacteria, odourless themselves, can live, populate, die and decompose to offend. Both the Greeks and Romans derived their perfume deodorants from Egyptian formulas. In fact, throughout most of recorded history, the only effective deodorant, aside from regular washing, was perfume, and it merely masked one scent with another for a time. The link between scent and odour was to become more clearly understood once the sweat glands were discovered in the 19th century. Scientists learned that human perspiration is produced by two kinds of sweat glands, the apocrine and the eccrine. The first structures exist over the entire body's surface at birth, giving babies their distinctive scent. 
Many of these gradually disappear, except for those concentrated in the armpit, around the anus, and circling the breast nipples. The glands are relatively inactive during childhood, but begin to function in puberty, switched on by sex hormones. In old age, they may wither and atrophy. Most of the body's sweat, though, is produced by the eccrine glands, abundant over the body's surface. Eccrine sweat is copious and cooling. In extreme heat and with high water intake, human subjects have been measured to secrete up to three gallons of sweat in 24 hours. The eccrine glands also function in response to nervousness, fever, stress and the eating of spicy foods. And sweat caused by emotional stress is particularly perfusive in the armpits, on the palms of the hands and on the soles of the feet. But most perspiration evaporates or is absorbed effectively by clothing. It is because the armpits remain warm and moist that they create a hospitable environment for bacteria. Convincing scientific evidence shows that armpit odour arises mainly, though not exclusively, from bacteria that thrive in the secretions of the apocrine glands. One study collected fresh human apocrine sweat and showed that it was odourless, kept for six hours at room temperature, with bacteria multiplying and dying, it acquired its characteristic odour. When sweat from the same source was refrigerated, no odour developed. Thus, ancient to modern perfume deodorisers never tackled the source of the problem, persistent underarm moisture. Deprived of moisture by an antiperspirant, bacteria cannot multiply. I'm broadcasting. And to finish off today's podcast, just a few stories from the world wide weird. A British Royal Navy captain has banned Brussels sprouts from his warship because he hates them. Commanding Officer Wayne Keeble, OBE of HMS Bulwark, says sprouts are the devil's vegetables. He denied a rumour he introduced the ban because they made his crew suffer from flatulence. Council contractors in London and England lifted up a woman's car, painted double yellow lines under it and towed it away. Ruth Ducker, 44, was told to pay the equivalent of 1,692 Australian dollars to get her car back. It took two months for the council to admit what had happened. By then, the fines had piled up to $4,548. An accident-prone shepherd had to be rescued after he followed his flock into a live minefield in Croatia. Philemon Sandamella 34 has also survived accidentally drinking sulfuric acid and stabbing himself in the stomach because a fortune teller 
told him it was time to die. And our short final article for today's podcast. An in-depth bit of research with a surprising result. Two scientists from Britain's University of Oxford on a three-year study costing the equivalent of nearly $500,000 found that ducks may be even more comfortable standing under a sprinkler than paddling around in a pond. Lead researcher Marion Stamp Dawkins concluded that ducks basically just like water. Well, there you go. Well, that concludes episode 75 of Origins, and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you'd like to provide feedback for the show, please do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. My email address is origins at origins.info. And remember, the show notes can be found at www.origins.info. So until episode 76, it's bye for now.
are pleading, you are needing faith rooted in action now. You are falling, I hear you calling. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs> 